Hi, and welcome to Ghent Expat Talks. My name is Maisie. And my name is Neeti. And we'll be your hosts for this podcast series. We're excited to launch this podcast on behalf of Community Ghent to bring you inspiring content and resources to navigate life as an expat. The Expat Community Ghent is a working group within the Community Ghent, which focuses on the well-being of expats in Ghent. And it is made up of young and dynamic individuals from all over the world, striving to make a positive impact on the lives of the talented internationals living in Ghent. We believe it takes a village to settle in and to find your sense of home when moving to a new country, which is why we have created this podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. On today's show, we have a special guest, Farrell, who's joining us. He's originally from the U.S. and coming to us here in Ghent, Belgium. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Farrell, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what brought you here to Belgium? So I never know how far back to go. It's a bit of a, a weird tale, but kind of the succinct version is I was living in Kyrgyzstan running a research company. And I ran into a Belgian guy who was just starting a renewable energy engineering consultancy. And I thought, my God, this, this guy is like crazy enough to move out here to Kyrgyzstan and start a company like I am. So I'm, I made it my kind of my mission to make sure he and I were friends. And uh, I accomplished that. <laughs> so we became... <laughs> Really close friends, and he was he was from Belgium. So he and his wife were were both out there. They were from Belgium, from Ghent, actually. And over the years in Kyrgyzstan, we got really close, and uh, eventually they moved back to to Belgium. And my wife and I had a kid, and we were raising this little baby, still out in Kyrgyzstan, and kind of, you know, the romance of living so far away in uh, in such a, a quote-unquote exotic place was starting to to wear thin frankly we were just thinking like okay it's time to uh, buckle down and do something else we really assumed we would be going back to the states and right at that time this this guy Carl the 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 Belgian friend sent an email with a job listing out here in Belgium and you know, we took it kind of as a joke, but I had not made a resume in many years. And so I thought like, okay, this is a, a great excuse for me to just, you know, work on my resume. I can send something in. And so I did that. It was a nice experience. And then they wanted an interview. And I thought like, oh, this will be a great like practice interview. I haven't interviewed in years. And why wow, you can, you can probably guess the rest of the story, you know, it spiraled from there and suddenly... <laughs> They wanted to hire me and we just thought, holy crap, would we do this? And and I should say a really key part of the decision was that it was Ghent. We had visited Ghent once and we just loved it. I think it's just one of the like hidden gems of the world. And the idea that we could live there, it didn't seem attainable to us before. That, that, that just was like, really thrilling and so um yeah we had spent all of two or three days in ghent before in our lives and suddenly we were packing our bags and and moving here 
Oh my God, crazy. <laughs> so um, the next question we wanted to ask was, so you moved here initially for a job that your friend has sent you an email. And I know that this is not the job that you're in. So can you tell us a little bit about a brief snippet of what you were doing before and what you're embarking on now? Sure. So I, I came here to work for, for Philips or sort of a, a subsidiary, the Philips Smart TVs. There was a, a company called TP Vision. And uh, I, I loved the job. It, it was great, but it turns out um, the world, including Belgians, prefer their Korean TVs. And so within two years, they had a massive round of layoffs and I actually jumped ship right before the layoffs hit, but I almost certainly was going to get uh, canned. And I left for a market research company called Insights here in uh, Ghent, but it was absolutely not the right fit for me. A few years into that, I, I could see th this craft beer thing coming to Belgium. I've, I grew up in Colorado, and for those who don't know, craft beer. Wow, that was one of the real birthplaces for the, the modern craft beer movement. Ironically, inspired quite a lot by Belgium in the, in the 80s. <laughs> and so I had been around that scene. I had been uh, kind of dabbled in home brewing, but not huge into it. But I could just see, I could see it coming. I could tell this place was, was ripe for it and it was going to hit. And it was a scene that I, I kind of, I felt like I knew a lot about. And so I decided to jump ship, leave all my, my years of research uh, behind and launch a craft beer brewery here in Ghent. And interestingly, for the first time ever in our many, many years, I went into this endeavor with that same friend from Kyrgyzstan who got me to move here originally. He and I have remained close friends, but we never did anything like professionally together. Suddenly all the pieces fell into place. And so, yeah, we've been building it for the last six months and we are just about to launch it. I, I suppose by the time the show airs, we will have just opened. Okay. Wow. That's quite oh, wow. the pivot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting though. So would you call yourself passionate about beer? Did you feel like this was something that you love and you just wanted to surround yourself with it from a work perspective? Or like you said, you just saw an opportunity and this just happened to be something that you're familiar with? I'm, I am definitely passionate about it. Like no doubt. Um, I'm one of these people who for better or worse, I can be a bit obsessive about the things I get interested in. And I'm interested in a lot of things and, and they're very disparate. So, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at learning how to, to rein it in and focus on. So beer was one of those and had been for, for many years. But I have to say the last two years, I, I really dove into it more than I ever expected I would. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. For me, the first thing that came into my mind was, okay, so Belgium is already the Valhalla of beer. <laughs> and the Belgian yes. people, there's not all of them, but most of mm -hmm. them, they always frequent the same bars. They, they have it like hard driven into them. It's the same heavy Trappist beers uh, that they always reach out to. Um, so how would you sell to these people? What is your USP 
There, there are a couple of things. So first, that what, what you say is, is absolutely true, and uh, I, I'm not going to change that. That would be a, a foolish thing to think. But what I've seen in the last few years, when, you, when I say, like I work at a beer festival, when you see the people who come up to the tables, when the very, very typical kind of old school Belgian guy, he's looking for the highest alcohol heaviest beer you've got and that's that's really a thing I've, I've seen it over and over but then when you see the kind of you know the younger cosmopolitan person come along they are looking for something more interesting and they're quite often you know they're concerned about how much alcohol they're taking in they're concerned about how much sugar is in a, that thing or how many calories are in it and so the american craft beer movement i mean it it goes all directions. And there are a lot of these like giant high alcohol, high sugar beers, but there was, there's also this very long and, and really interesting uh, tradition of lower alcohol beers that are still really interesting. Because what I had found here in Belgium was you, you had this kind of dichotomy, right? You, you had these beautiful, amazing, brilliant, iconic beers, but they were all kind of high ABV, these really intense beers, or you had these, you know, cheap, fizzy, tasteless <laughs> lagers that 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 every country has, you know. And, and frankly, Belgians were no better or worse than anywhere else. But you know, if you go to Turkey, they have one. You go to China, they have one. You go to, you know, I'm from Colorado. We have Coors. It's the the home of Coors, which is another tasteless, fizzy, light yellow, you know, quote unquote beer. So that was your, your alternative here in Belgium, if you wanted to drink something kind of lower in alcohol. And so I saw, I saw a space there first off, but second off, I, I also realized that Belgium has an amazing history of, of uh, all these uh, really unique and incredible beers. But in the last 20 years, they've kind of gotten away from it in a lot of ways. You, you had a lot of really the same beer going by different names all over the place. And, and so I just I saw an opportunity to uh, do something different. And despite the fact that Belgium's this very traditional market, there are a lot of places, especially a place like Ghent, where, you know, you can excel doing something different. The way I always look at it is, if you had taken your, your average Gentenar 30 years ago, if you had spoken to their grandmother, let's say, and said, your kids or your grandkids, they're going to love sushi or Thai food. They would have been like, yeah, no, we don't do that. We eat stofles and fritches. And now you go to Ghent and, and that grandson or granddaughter or whatever, not only do they eat raw fish, they have a very favorite sushi roll and they have a very favorite sushi restaurant. This is a very progressive, very cosmopolitan place, despite all its tradition. And what's cool is the, the tradition still lives on. No one's taking that away. But you see people are, are interested and curious. And, you know, so, so I could just see that, that all these staid, old school, traditional ways of doing things, they can stick around. But there was definitely room for, for something more progressive and, and just different. Definitely. And I think Ghent is a place to do that for sure. I, I really see that it's pushing the borders on a lot of things. So hallelujah, right place to be. <laughs>
I think a lot of us have what we would consider great ideas or, you know, I think everyone's had that thought. If I were to start my own company, this is what I would do. But I think it is a pretty big leap to go from an idea and, and even really seeing a, a need in the market to starting up something. So whether it's people start at different phases, but it can start from a concept or finding a physical location or a name or, or how do you, how did you kind of go from it just being an idea in your head or, you know, a conversation topic that you would have with Carl over at late at night into actually being tangible and that you're taking it seriously. And, and what did you do to take it from that vision to actual reality? To put it bluntly, I was miserable at my job. It's, it was a great company. They were doing really well. I was earning great money. I was, at a seniority level that I, I was lucky to be at, frankly, and I could see myself, I, I could have lasted an entire career there. It would have been fine. And that idea just frankly mortified me. And, and I, I couldn't live with it. And when I turned to see like, okay, if, if that's how you're feeling, you know, we, we, we only, again, not to be so cheesy, but like, we only get one shot at this. Like, I, I don't get to like, come back again and try life over and see, see which things work this time. I just thought like, screw it. I've got, I've got to do something. And when I looked out at like the, the possibility out there, this was by far the most compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, both. And it's because I, I really believed in it in a business sense, but also I, I had that, you know, emotional connection. An important aspect of it, too was that I had Carl, I had my my business partner there, and he he's a, a very savvy uh, business person. You know, he's he's started a few uh, companies and done a lot of other stuff. He's been very active in the art world for several years, and and has had a, a few galleries. I don't know. He's just a savvy guy, and he's he was born and raised in Ghent. Has lived in every corner of Ghent you can imagine. And so he came into this from that aspect. He wanted to do something. He wanted to do something creative. He wanted to do something new. He wanted to do something community-minded in this, this city. And But he didn't, he didn't particularly care about beer. And so I just, I gave him my pitch and that was compelling enough for him to want to know more. And so I started showing him my these spreadsheets that I had made and all the, the numbers I had crunched. He challenged me on a, a great deal of it. And there was stuff in there that I, I realized now was, was very kind of naive and I couldn't have gotten luckier having a guy like him look at it, but he looked at it all and we went through it and he was still a believer. And so having that was, you know, a huge boost of confidence because the, this whole thing, it, it, it is a massive gamble, of course. It's not just a financial gamble, but it's a, it's a professional gamble. And it, it, feels, it feels terrifying at moments, no doubt. And, and there are moments where it's full of challenges. And some of those challenges are, are really unwelcome and sometimes unexpected. And, and it can feel daunting, you know? No one, no one wants to be like haunted when they lay in bed trying to fall asleep at night. But but having someone like that, like kind of validate the idea was big for me. It wasn't just me kind of lost in my own head with some romantic idea of what I wished I could do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's great that you spoke about the unforeseen challenges or the naivety that you had before um, jumping into this endeavor. Um, so speaking about like unforeseen challenges, like what were those things that just popped on your plate? Granted that you had someone very local uh, with mm-hmm. you who could guide through the process of like paperwork and like legislations and things like this. What were the other things that uh, popped up? out of nowhere there were some big things you know there's just there's so much government bureaucracy go through and there were a few yeah just a few things where suddenly you can't know these things up front and you can't you can't get there until you've already invested the money until you've already bought the property or you know you have to have taken some huge risks already to where you're already in it you know, there's no turning back and then the city, you know, Stadhent comes back with what at times can seem like an, a nearly insurmountable roadblock. And so, yeah, those are terrifying moments. We had, we, our, our biggest challenges, to be honest, have been with uh, the city, the the federal government, the tax inspectors, and uh, I don't know, there have been a, at least, uh, I'm not overstating this, a dozen agencies that we've had to be in touch with and had to work through files with and stuff. And largely it's been great, but the city, I have to admit, it's been tough. We've just tried to roll with the punches. Um, another one that, that really caught us by surprise was Brexit has turned out to be an absolute nightmare for us. Is that because you are importing things uh, from yeah. England? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's just, it's really expensive. It's really slow. It's been tough. Yeah, logistical nightmare that was, I think. <laughs> yeah. And we also got hit by, you know, there was, uh, there's been this, this global shipping disaster built up because of the pandemic. And now every port is flooded. And there, there frankly, there are not enough shipping containers and ships right now. And so shipping rates, international shipping rates have just skyrocketed and when you're packing tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of euros worth of equipment into a container uh, these things suddenly matter and you know these are things i i was a social researcher before this it's mind-boggling it's crazy and you know we've got a container ship at sea that we've just you know paid some obscene amount for and then the suez canal gets blocked and yeah exactly (laughs) this thing like and that's meaningful to me personally for the first time you know I, i had never had that experience you know when you go to start a business when i'm thinking about the the heyday of craft beer in colorado i am not thinking about the ever given getting stuck sideways in the suez canal there's nothing you can do to prepare for this sort of stuff and it comes up and you just to a big extent, it's like crisis management from one crisis to the other crisis. And then you just have to keep going on and on and on. And speaking of that, that, that all of this seems like really hectic and not your core business or your core passion. Well, I, I would say kind of two things there. One is that while I'm very passionate about the beer and I will be the I'm, I'm the head brewer, I'm going to be brewing the beer. And so that, that, that does kind of eat up a lot of, of what I will be doing. I'm also, I'm very passionate about business. 
this. You know, it's it's not the first business I've started and run. And while other people would probably run from it, I really relished all the hours we spent on these spreadsheets. I loved doing the projections and building new uh, financial models and um, calculating our cash flow to make sure we were going to be safe in a, a year uh, and things like this. Like I, I get, I still get, I get a lot of energy out of that stuff. And so, so I don't mind that of course the firefighting like you're talking about these these crises no one wants to do that or i think very few people would want to do that it's it's tough but but also what happened relatively quickly um is that your definition of what constitutes a crisis just shifts big new cost or some delay or some i don't know some piece of equipment that's not working right or it's not connecting right or whatever it is and that no longer constitutes a, a crisis for me. Like uh, I know the crises will come. We're we're gonna face them, um, and the small stuff. I've it's it's been a great experience, and like myself, not to sweat it. And that that's my job actually. My job is just to to face unforeseeable challenges and figure out a way through it so that we're doing something tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. I think. It shows, though, that through the experience, you do build a lot of resilience, which is what is coming out of me when, or what I'm thinking when you're saying this, basically, is your full-time job is to be a problem solver, but you just have picked in a way, you know, an industry or an area that you're incredibly passionate and happy about. And like you said, your idea has changed about what really constitutes a problem or a crisis and and how you're going to react and deal with it. Hallelujah. That's exactly it. I have two kind of questions that came from that. So first, did you teach your, did you study business? Did you teach yourself business? Because I think for those that, for example, maybe study that in, in high school or college, it might come easy to making spreadsheets and cash flows. And But I think for those that may not have as much experience, how did you start with that? And do you have any advice for what you would say to someone that, for example, is, is working in a creative industry, for example, or event planning or whatnot, and how they should go about that? I, I, I don't have formal training. I went to college uh, late, actually, and I started at just a community college. It's like the first half of college, uh, actually. And I think I flirted with the idea of business administration or something like that back then, but I didn't, I didn't really do anything or learn anything, frankly. Uh, my... My real business acumen just came from watching very closely at the companies I worked. Uh, It was something they were very good at and they had a structure where essentially teams operated functionally as a business within the business. What I learned from it was just that if you keep on top of that stuff and if you're always watching it, you, you absolutely can make more money and run a tighter ship. Mm-hmm. And so it's something I, I definitely carried over into uh, Strom, into the, the brewery. Yeah. No, that's great. And my last question, and then I'll give it back to you, Nithi, as well, is when it comes to finance, did you were you able to finance this all yourself with savings or did you have to look for anything outside in order to, because I can imagine there were a lot of startup costs that came with getting a physical brick and mortar space and the materials and and whatnot. Both Carl and I uh, put down a big chunk of change to get this rolling, but no, we, we got a bank loan. 
to fill in the gap. Okay. And and that's of course that's another it's a big gamble. These things are these are scary large numbers when you see them on paper. But yeah, it's the it's the reality of of running a business. That, that was also actually though a, a wonderfully validating moment is when you put together this whole business plan. You've got you have to show someone else all these spreadsheets and you know this is the bank. They mm-hmm. they know what they're doing and they see a lot of these things and and they know BS when they see it and they know when people are are making like disastrous mistakes or, or bad decisions or whatever you know it wasn't without some back and forth but more or less they they didn't blink they said this is really solid and gave us the money which was another vote of confidence now that said it's it's their job to give away money and we pay them for the wonderful privilege of this validation but it, it still was uh it was nice definitely I guess your Excel skills are top notch. <laughs> yeah. The, I, uh, yep. Honestly, like if I could have one say in how education is reformed anywhere, I, I, I can't claim to really know uh, how it is here in Belgium. It would be that like Excel should be a class. It should be like a multi-year class. People should come out of any level of schooling very, very proficient. Yeah, don't, I completely waste, agree. Don't waste kids' time with like quadratic equations. They will, they will not use that. But they will definitely like. No one avoids it. We we all end up using it. Even my poor father, who was a, a mechanic for his entire life, and then got into the racing industry and was managing this race team, he was suddenly getting Excel outputs from the computer chips in these race cars and and having to you know adjust parameters and the engines of these race cars and stuff and if if my 65 year old mechanic father has had to learn excel it means everyone does <laughs> Macy, maybe that can be our new business um so this is your professional journey which is also like it's 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 not always been what you wanted it to be but it's on the way and you're getting there but how did this journey also uh, take effect on your personal life? Like, how was your wife uh, dealing with the situation? What about your kids? Um, that's it. Doesn't seem easy for sure. But how was the situation at home? If uh, if I can ask, um, uh, absolutely. No, you're, you're you're absolutely right. Like it it has a it has a personal impact. You know, we're we're running a household here, and these are things we need to be concerned with. This might come off as maybe reckless to uh, some people, but essentially my wife and I both view it like, A, we're raising little middle-class white kids in Northern Europe. Like these are among the luckiest people that humanity has ever known. They're in good schools. They're they're smart kids. They're healthy. These guys are, are going to succeed. They have like nearly every advantage going for them. So that's one aspect we don't feel, and many people understandably would disagree with me and I think that's that's totally fine, but we don't feel any obligation that to build some family fortune or some big inheritance that we leave to our kids or whatever. Again, maybe that's reckless, but kind of it's our, it's our take. You think in those terms, it kind of 
frees you up in some ways. Of course, we don't want to be we don't want to be homeless or or destitute or or miserable or anything. So we're trying to be we're trying to kind of manage risks in a in a smart way. But on the personal side, it it really it kind of went maybe the opposite direction of what what people would think. My wife saw me working insane hours, hating a great deal of what I did and feeling like no, you know, professional satisfaction with what I was doing. And she had seen me, she'd seen me pull those same crazy hours, but doing things I loved in the past. It couldn't have been more different. And she was the one at at one point who kind of pulled me aside and said, babe, you, you need to quit. Just quit. Like you're going crazy. You're it, it. It's it was bad for my my health. It was bad for my mental health. It also just probably made me a lousier person to be around. A lousier husband. A lousier friend. A lousier dad. And and I say all of this, saying like it's not that we were at some crisis moment. Like our marriage was great. We were generally quite happy. Uh, my kids were healthy and happy and I have a great relationship with them. But, you know, she could see the writing on the wall. Like this was not sustainable for another 25 years. And also I I should mention my wife jumped ship uh, uh, about two years ago and started her own business. And so she's in the middle of this kind of entrepreneurial. Ooh, this family is, is like, all of you guys are entrepreneurs. <laughs> Indeed. But well, no, so she crossed. could, she could, she could really understand. And, you know, we, we're going into it with our eyes open. We, we know what we're getting into. We know there are real risks. But again, anyone, frankly, if you're listening to this podcast, we are some of the luckiest people humanity has ever known. And so if you're handed this hand, you know, play it. Really, the worst case scenario for me is this whole thing is disastrous. It all goes belly up. I've got a small pile of debt and I don't have a job anymore. And you know what? I'm going to take my decades of business and research experience and I'm going to go get a decent paying job and I'm going to keep a house over my head. I'm going to keep food on the table. My children are still going to grow up with loving parents in a country that, you know, supports them with a wonderful education and great healthcare and clean streets and whatever. Like I could go on and on and on. So like, if that's the kind of worst case risk I'm taking, screw it. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll take that gamble. And that's what we've done. We've just decided to take that gamble. You know, when, when you kind of go beyond that fear of the what if, and you say, okay, what if, what if this all just doesn't work out and you're able to still rationalize it, then there really is nothing to fear because like you said, you've just, you've just experienced it. (laughs) I'm saying this in my boldest moment. This isn't to say that there are not moments where I sit back you know, we, we, we all have it. Even, even when I was just a, a salary worker, you know, I would have moments where, you know, you sit back and you think you have like imposter syndrome. Everyone's doing this better than me, or I don't know, whatever the, the case may be in the, in the moment. And I, I still, I still have those, 
those moments, my kind of higher level drive. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful piece of advice though, to, to everyone that's listening. That's so courageous also. Wow. I'm amazed. I guess that brings us to our last question here, Farrell. So if from all of the nuggets of advice that you've sprinkled throughout this conversation, if there was one parting piece of advice that you want to leave with the audience, specifically for the people that needed to hear this, to get that that spark of inspiration to follow their passions and their dreams and start something on their own, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, goodness. I'm, I'm guessing like most of the people who are listening to this are, are immigrants or expats or whatever you want to call them, or are somehow associated with with some of them, know some, or, and having lived, you know, I've lived in Egypt, I've lived in Iraq, I lived in Kyrgyzstan, I lived in Belgium. I'm not quite a pro. I'm, I'm sure there are people who know better, but like, I feel like I've, I've had enough of a breadth of experience with kind of these communities to see patterns. And one pattern that I see, and, and I've been as guilty of this as anybody, but it is very easy as an immigrant, as an expat, as a foreigner to criticize the place you're in and constantly compare it unfavorably to wherever you're from. And I think this is, it's totally understandable. And and sometimes it may even have some, you know, nugget of truth in it, in that there may be something truly inherently better, but I would... I would ask people to to take a step back from that and and pause and and understand. I mean, especially if you're listening to this, it means you're in Belgium, likely, probably even in Ghent. My God, like I've been in a lot of places in the world, a lot of corners of this planet. This is truly like one of Earth's treasures. So recognize that and recognize that if things were so, you know, perfect or so much better back home, wherever, wherever home may be, you would be there. The reason you're here is either you followed a job or you followed love or I don't know, like some accident of history or geography or whatever. And, uh, you know, you're, you're here now. And, and frankly, it's a wonderful place to be. And if, if everything were so perfect back home, that's where you'd be. But you're not. You're here. And that's because you found that love or you found that job or you, you stumbled your way through this accident of history or geography. And, and uh, here you are. So just take a moment to be grateful. Just be grateful for, for um, you know, what you've got here. So if I have one token of advice, it's just a general one. Don't, don't get yourself caught in this trap. Just come to be grateful for, for where you are and, and what you're getting where you are and, and appreciate it. Wow. I think we all needed to hear that. I can totally resonate. I, I um, often find myself comparing where, where I'm from to, to what's here. So but it doesn't make you feel terribly good. So I think it's definitely important to take that uh, appreciative, grateful mindset, like you said. <laughs> so for the listeners, as we close this up, do you want to give us a little bit of a treat? Um, where should we head to your brewery? What's what's it called sure. and what should we order when we first go? All right. So the brewery is called Strom, S-T-R-O-O-M. We are on Forelstrat, which is uh, just near the water for people who, who know Ghent, maybe they know Visere, and we're, we're just off of that. And you know what? We're going to have a lot of 
beers of all different styles. So just come by and uh, you can even get tasters. So come by and, and sample and, and see what you like. We've got a We've got a store where we'll be selling the beer, you know, to take away. If you're in town, we've got a little machine so we can even buy a bottle and then bring it back as many times as you want. And we'll just keep refilling it for you. And three days a week, Thursday through Saturday, we'll open the tap room so you can actually sit down and enjoy one right there among all the tanks. And maybe you'll see me like up on the brewing platform getting sprayed down with hot liquids and... (laughs) whatever that that could be a treat too amazing Um, we can't wait to go yeah that really sounds great something that uh, i think we've never seen before in ghent uh it's like an experience on its own macy we're definitely going there to celebrate (laughs) once the podcast is you guys are 100 invited i would love to uh have you over and sit down and and have a chat over some beers oh wonderful we can't wait (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful. Cool. Thank you guys for inviting me. I feel like, uh, yeah, it's cool. I've never been asked to do anything like this. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. We also hope you enjoy. If you have any questions or comments, feedback, please feel free to reach out to us. And we are also curious to hear from you in terms of which topics you want to hear us dive into a little bit more about. We'll see you guys next time. Stay safe.